Well, welcome to Christmas at Conduit this year. It was, uh, I don't want to say it's a few weeks ago or a few months ago even that we were gathering around the table in, uh, in staff meeting asking the question, you know, asking the question of ourselves, what are we going to do this year that stands out uh, in terms of making Christmas meaningful and intentional and something that, that doesn't just skip across the surface of your life or doesn't get lost even in the whole, I want to say mess, or whole calendar of things that happens in the Christmas season. Because it's so, so incredibly easy to speed through the end of November through December and get to the end of the year and look back and question uh, about, you know, do, do you even remember? Do I even remember what happened in the last two months? These are like some of the most important and can be some of the most intentional and impactful months of our calendar year, but they are also by nature some of the most hectic and busy and easily forgotten months. And so as a staff, we were trying to decide, well, how do we make Christmas matter this year? How, what, what is it, that, what is it that, that we can do in our own, in our own way to, to plan, to, to strategize, to be intentional, to make Christmas matter? And then what do we call that thing that we're going to be doing? And <laughs> we, kind of, we kind of allowed it to... Um, to dilute itself down to just the basic statement that Christmas does indeed matter. That, that Christmas matters. And if that, if that point has escaped us so far this year, we want to we stand on that truth this week and next week and the week after. And then in our Christmas week service on uh, Friday the 23rd, that Christmas does indeed matter. And it matters in a variety of different places and ways because of what Christmas signifies and means. And so we're going to we're going to explore that a little bit this morning. Uh, if you have been attending Conduit for a while now, you'll you'll know that there are kind of three three main areas of of focus or intentionality, or discipleship that Conduit goes, uh, that, that Conduit uses to develop in an intentional way disciples of Jesus Christ. And we have, we've kind of created curriculums and three, three class, class experiences or groups that you can, you can study with us and, and be in, in fellowship with us called Home church and community, and I know many of you have, have gone through some of those classes, and there'll be opportunities to go through them um, here in the future, but, but many of you might not know that, that we have those three main areas of focus. We have, if you would, if you would think of them somewhat like, um, like a target, all right, and a target has a, a small uh, bullseye or inner circle, and then concentric circles to get a little bit larger as they go out with varying, um, varying intensities, okay? And, and for us, 
the main target that we want to hit because of its, because of the um, intensity and the, the impact that it makes in our individual lives is something that we call home. That, that we believe um, faith in Jesus Christ, the relationship with, uh, with Jesus as Savior, as Redeemer, as friend, it impacts your home first and foremost. It impacts the, the place where you set your feet down. And we're not even talking about home as just the place where you lay your head down at night, the, the physical dwelling, your house, right? We're not, it's, it's home, it's not house. It's about, it's about how... Um, about how a relationship with Jesus affects my personhood, my identity, and then overflows into the closest space that I have. It's the people I live next to, the people that I live with, the people that I am most closely in relationship with. It's, it's home. And if, and, if, and if relationship with Jesus does not affect and start with the home, then it certainly can't do any good when us as individuals and then families come together on a Saturday night at Conduit North or Sunday morning here at, at Conduit um, in a place that we call the next circle out church. Which is where uh, we, we that have faith in Jesus Christ become united in heart and in hand in our worship of the majesty and glory of the Father and the fellowship of common faith in Jesus Christ and an, and an opportunity to be fed by the Word, to be filled by the Spirit, to be encouraged by one another, to be, to be prepared to go out into the next concentric circle, which is the community, where, where what Jesus has done in our hearts and our homes and where Jesus has united us together as a church, we, all of that overflows out into a place where Jesus has not yet taken root as Savior. And where the home and the church moves out on mission to the community. And we believe, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Christmas matters in those three places. That Christmas matters in your home. That Christmas matters in the church. That Christmas matters in the community. And we believe it because of one like um, very distinct, well, I call it a, a theological principle or a reality or a truth, whatever you want to call it. And that's what we celebrate during Christmas, the reason that Christmas matters is because of this one word, incarnation. And if I, when I was thinking about how we, how we talk about and how we picture the incarnation, the incarnation of God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ and, and coming onto the scene in the specific way that he did, in the environment that he did, why he did the way he did. That's why we have this um, stable here. The place of the incarnation. The first 
home, so to speak. It's beautiful, isn't it? Ellen Felt, everyone. Amazing, right? She needs to be honored for that. She worked so hard this week, so hard. So I was thinking about this moment of incarnation, this moment where, where Jesus comes on the scene. And um, the image that I got in my mind was, uh, you know, you ever watch on TV or maybe a, a YouTube video or something like that, where you see um, like the military, they're, they're testing, they're testing ordnance, so they're testing bombs. Right? Or maybe you see like when they are testing a, a nuclear weapon or something like that, and you just see this, this landscape, maybe this, this single um, block building, you know, cement block building with this m simple metal roof, and everything seems quiet and serene and, and simple, and then like almost slow motion out of the sky, you see this thing, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's dropping like, and there's this, these heat waves that are coming off of it and, it, and it touches down and it impacts, right? And it, and it dives deep down into the building or deep down into the ground and then slowly out from that, out from that place, out from ground zero are these shock waves of effect that just, depending on the bomb or depending on the area, just blow everything over and, and that there's nothing that it's left unaffected when this, when this bomb hits ground zero, when it, when it makes impact and, and, and the incarnation is like that moment, right? Where everything seems calm and everything was serene and it was so simple, it's like, like we'll just put up a nativity scene and it will, it will perfectly encapsulate the simplicity and the perfectness and how cute um, ev the, the whole scene was. And then Jesus comes in, splashes down, and sends shock waves of effect everywhere. And that's kind of how I picture the incarnation. Where nothing is left unaffected in the wake of Jesus touching down on earth. Now, when we talk about why Christmas matters at home, um, and we talk about this moment where Jesus sets his feet down, I think we, we have to ask the question about um, the, the places and the, the ways in which Jesus sets his feet down in our homes. And if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, when, when we talk about the nature of the home, or we talk about the nature of the family, or we talk about, like, what, if you were to ask me to, uh, or if I were to ask you, reflect on your home life. Reflect on your home life now. Reflect on your home life growing up. Reflect on the, the place and the people and the experiences that, that formed you and developed you into the person that you are now. 
Now, during the Christmas season, it's very popular to be very nostalgic about everything home and family and together and the people that we love and the relationships and Christmas parties and cookies and presents and lights. And it's also perfect with the nativity. And Joseph and Mary, they were beautiful and they had a great family. And, and everything surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ just seems so magical. But, but that is so far outside of reality that we often have to question whether or not if, if Jesus sat down in such an ideal and perfect way when he first came. And I'm looking at the, the reality of my life and it's not so perfect and it's not so ideal and it's not so put together and cute. Is there a place for Jesus to incarnate himself in, in my family and to make Christmas matter for me this year? As I look at... Because um, as I ask this question to people, and as I hear from people's hearts about um, what does it mean, like, reflect on your family life, reflect on your home, tell me about what has formed you and the experiences and the relationships and the, and the people. You don't always get the perfect nativity scene type of story. You get stories about, about just sheer and utter brokenness. About about relationships that have gone completely awry. About, about prodigals that have walked away from families and they don't expect to see them during Christmas. And even if they do, they're certainly not looking forward to it. Or you hear stories about things that should have been. This should be a season where blank happens. Or this, this is how my family should look. Or this is how my family could be if just A, B, and C happened. This is what would have happened if he didn't do this or she didn't make that decision. Or if I could just change this about my life, man, then I, I think I could get behind the whole, like, the, the real excitement, the real feel-good emotions and feelings about Christmas, but right now I'm just drowning in, a, in, this, in this flood of the raw reality of what my life looks like, and it's not so nostalgic. And I don't think Christmas really matters in a way to me. There's a rawness and reality to life that often leads us uh, questioning, I think, where Jesus actually is making his home with us. Now, I've, um, see, I've been here at Conduit for 18 months, a year and a half, something, something like that. And so I've had an opportunity to, to, to speak here and, uh, of course, over at Conduit North. And, and several times I've been able to share some of my story and, um, uh, and some of the experiences of, of my family life growing up. And this is certainly not a, certainly not a sermon about Cameron's life. Um, I don't want you to get that impression at all. Um, but I think that there is a there is a way that the Spirit of God uses what He does in us to speak to and speak through and use in ministry to other people. And so, instead of just casting away uh, the story of what God has done uh, in my family and my home and even the raw reality of what it all entails, like I just share some of those things with you um, with the uh, hope that you find some point of connection to your own story. Um, because 
Because if you paint this perfect picture of nativity scene Jesus, of nativity scene nostalgic Christmas, that was not at all my experience growing up in home. <laughs> reflecting on my own home and reflecting on my own family. My parents were uh, divorced when I was young at uh, the, age of, the age of six. I remember coming home from a visit with my cousin and overnight and my aunt dropped me off and I walked in my back, back door to find blood um, on the floor and broken glass in the kitchen. Um, and the, the, the drops of blood led me um, at like a little, like, like breadcrumbs to find my mom who was on the floor um, after a, a, a pretty unfortunate domestic violence incident. And I remember the, the ensuing um, interaction there with my, my mom and my dad and, and the police coming and, 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 and taking my dad away. And, um, and then what happened afterwards, the, 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 you know, the disputes over, over custody and the he said and the she said and, uh, and, and, and parents using kids as, as pawns to create pain in the life of the other and feeling stuck in the middle between loving my dad and loving my mom and not knowing what was going on and trying to find my identity and trying to understand what was going on. What, what, what in the world have I done wrong here? Like, like what, what did I do wrong? That, that they're so angry at each other and that they're using me to create this pain in each other's lives. And then I, I thought that um, about five years later that when my mom remarried that this was going to be the opportunity to like really have a relationship with a, a man who was going to mentor me and, and love me and, and teach me all of the things that, that uh, a father to, should teach his son and then and then, and, and then that whole song and dance was, was shattered when, when he began to abuse my mom and then abuse my sister and then abuse me. And then, and then when he was done abusing us, kicked us, kicked us to the curb. And it turned into just this cycle of soothing that pain with addiction. Right? And then the pain of that relationship of being rejected by him and being under the, the boot of emotional and physical and verbal abuse, and then to watch him, even though there was anger and pain built up in my soul and my life, about watch him drink himself to death and have no opportunity to, to see God redeem him and see God redeem all, all, all of that. But, but setting forth, saying, okay, well, uh, we'll continue on. And um, going into junior high and, and high school and, and, um, <clears throat> and dating a girl, right? And um, wandering through that whole mess of adolescence and high school and wanting to be a, a, a good man and to grow up to be a good man. And I had this sense in my heart of who God was calling me to be and wanted me to be. Didn't exactly know how to get there, but I knew where I didn't want to go was to recreate the same home, to recreate the same environment, to recreate the same family that I had been raised in or I had been, had been brought up in. And so Sherry and I got married when, we, um, when I graduated college in 2004 and um, on, at, the center of both of the, at the center of both of our hearts was this deep desire to have a family. To create like the, 
Two and a half kids, white picket fence, dog in the backyard, tire swing on the tree out front, you know, like perfect modern day nativity scene of everything is awesome. And, and we felt so strongly that because God had placed that desire so deeply within our hearts that, that we needed only to embrace it and decide when we were going to start that journey. And it was going to happen without, without us really trying at all. And so we thought when we got married, oh, maybe we'll wait a year or two until we, until we try to start having kids. And, and we got so excited and so really impatient with what we wanted that we, ah, three months in, well, let's just have kids now. Because we thought that's just how it worked, right? You just decide to have kids and then it happens, right? Well, month one and two and three and four and five and six and seven and eight and nine and ten and twelve and then year two and then year three and then year four and then year five, and then you're six, <clears throat> and then you're seven. We're like, this is not going according to plan. Like, we have got a plan, and we've got an idea, and we have all these um, goals and dreams, and you have put these desires so deeply within our hearts, and then it doesn't just become about, man, this is really disappointing because we wanted this family, and we can't, and we can't have it, but, but then it, it extended beyond just what we wanted in, in, our, in our home life as a house and as a family, but it, it passed through that, and now it began to strike at the center of the home of our hearts and our identity, and who, we, and who we were. And I know that I can speak for my wife where, uh, where it brought up questions about like, man, am I, what kind of a woman am I if I can't conceive a child? And, and in my own way, the, the different ways that, that men and women think about those types of things, I'd have my own questions. Like, am I even a man? Can I, like, am I, am I so broken that the most, like, primal and, like, and natural thing for human beings to do, to reproduce, that I can't even, do, I can't even get that right? Like, like, my whole, like, I don't get it. Um, and so there was this real sense of like I don't have a home. Like, yeah, we have a family, but when someone when someone asks Cameron, tell me about your family, I'm like, well, <laughs> here's my wife. And I love her to death and like we're best friends and like I can't imagine life without her, but when we think of family and we think of home, that's not what we were thinking about. And we began to ask this question about, like, the Christmas matters question. Like, uh, Jesus, wh when are you going to touch down in our home? Like, when are, when are you going to touch down in, in our family? And begin to begin to imagine that because, because our home and our family looks so unlike what we picture the ideal, the normal, the ordinary, and because there's such 
feeling like such a deep chasm between our reality and the perceived normal or ordinary, that that chasm must be, that it exists there, must be like the chasm between us and God. Because, because um, somehow, and for some reason, there, there's this disconnect between God and us that, that um, it's not producing in our lives what we think it should. So obviously there's some big separation. And you know, um, when we read the gospel accounts, we may like to think that the nativity scene is some nostalgic, perfect picture of the ordinary life and family. And we need only to reproduce the perfect circumstances behind Mary and Joseph's life and the birth of Jesus to have our own sense of nativity scene family. Um, but the reality is, man, if we read the Gospels not as we're reading them like some kid's Christmas play, but read them for the raw reality as they exist, we begin to realize that it wasn't so perfect or ordinary or ideal for Jesus himself. And our homes are not always made under the most ideal of circumstances, the most ordinary of situations. I want to draw attention uh, to the Gospel of Luke. Now I know you'll, you, may, you may think that we at Conduit here have um, outlived our welcome in the Gospel of Luke, but, uh, but we're going back there. Uh, because Luke has a, has a really great way of uh, just communicating the, like, he doesn't, he doesn't mask, uh, he doesn't interpret, really. He just tells the plain story, right? It's just like, it's out there. Facts, data, you know, like, point to point to point to point to point. So we look in Luke 2. And um, it starts out like a history lesson, right? Luke wants, to, Luke wants you to know the exact time period that he's talking about. So he references a historical figure and a historical event that we have no problem dating even today, okay? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And in case you didn't know what Caesar he was talking about, he was like, let me just tell you, um, it was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now this is a really cute story. And, man, most of us can tell it. Right? Most of us have memorized it to the point of being like, 
and there was no room for them in the inn, right? So she, they wrapped the baby Jesus in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. All right, so here's the reality of the story, okay? Um, uh, Joseph and Mary were not married. And she was pregnant out of wedlock. And um, in an interesting twist, there was no way in which Joseph could possibly, right, ever convince anyone that he didn't touch her. <laughs> Joseph was like, dude, I swear, it was not me. Uh-huh, yeah, all right. Yeah, we know how this works, Joseph. Um, and so the taboo nature, right, of, of that pregnancy was, was like, it was written all over Mary's body. There was no way to, there was no way of getting around it, right? And so let's say that, um, let's say, now, I just got done telling you that, that we've never been pregnant, but um, I'm, let's say we just, we bank on the side of, common sense, okay? Your wife is seemingly getting very large, right? And it's probably close to her due date. So you decide to pack um, no clothes for the upcoming baby, make no preparations for a place to stay when you get there, and decide it might be a good idea to place her on the back of a donkey and march her 300 miles through the Holy Land back to your hometown, expecting that everything would just go peachy. Does this make sense? It does not make sense, right? Joseph wasn't thinking. Mary wasn't thinking. Either that or the baby came at such an unexpected time that they were completely caught off guard. Regardless of the circumstances, you get the sense that labor and delivery super unideal given the circumstances. Not prepared, having no place to stay, going up to the place that they think they can stay and saying, well, we've got no place for you, but you can go and stay in the barn. Like, well, at least they had a bassinet to put him in. Because that's what a manger is, right? As a bassinet. Well, also known in the ancient Near East as a feeding trough, the manger is, right? Swaddling clothes were uh, basically whatever was left over. You know, whatever, whatever the family could find, small strips of linen, um, mimicking very close to what they would wrap someone in at burial when they were burying them. All right, so Jesus got the leftovers of everything. He came and set his feet down in the most unideal of places and times under the most taboo and unideal, non-ordinary circumstances, finding himself with nothing to wear, living in his first home shared by the animals. If I could give one word of encouragement and hope to you this morning, is that is if when you, uh, when you are reflecting on 
the nature of your home life. And whether or not it meets the ideal or the ordinary. Or whether all of your relationships seem to fit together perfectly. And there is no anxiety or tension or anger or bitterness or malice. Or there is no one that you are not looking forward to seeing during the holidays. Or the smile on your face. That everyone says the holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, this beautiful time of year is supposed to, is supposed to bring. Right? You don't have to fake that. Right? You, you, don't, you don't have to fake the rawness and reality of life to somehow bridge, even if it's in your own mind, the chasm that you think is between you and God because your family and your relationships or your home or even your heart don't fit the model of perfect and ordinary and normal and ideal. Because let me tell you what, it simply is not in a cliche way, it does not exist. Because even the first family of our faith Mary and Joseph and Jesus found themselves in the most unideal, unordinary, non-traditional circumstances that you could have possibly painted ever. And that is exactly the place where Jesus sets his feet down. Ground zero for God's incarnate love in your life is in the messy and broken and unideal. It is in the non-ordinary. It is in everything that the world says is wrong and not normal about your family. That's where Jesus wants to incarnate himself. That's where Jesus wants to be. That's where Jesus wants to live. That's the place that Jesus wants to have in your family and in your home. Jesus lives in the midst of everything that the world tells you is wrong with your home and your family and your heart. That's where Jesus makes his home. And there's an incredible thing that happens when we relax and breathe and receive the incarnate Jesus in the midst of the brokenness or non-ideal or unordinary or non-normative center of our home. Something happens when we come to say, all right, no, no, no fake smile, no, no gutting it out, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fake it until I make it. Pretend that it's going to, that it, that it is for me like the world says it's going to be. Something amazing happens when we're like, I'm done. I'm done with all of that. And I'm only, only about receiving Jesus into the midst of everything that's going on. But we got we to gotta go somewhere else in the scriptures, in the gospels, to see exactly 
what happens there. Um, so, uh, flip over to the Gospel of John. If you were in Luke, you just got to go over one book to the right. The Gospel of John, the very first chapter. <clears throat> okay, so here's, um, here's a little... Here's a little thing about um, the difference between gospel writers, all right? Little, just a little snippet, all right? <clears throat> um, how about we say, say it like this? Who here has seen... Oh, it's Christmas season. Who here has seen the movie... Um, this is almost a silly question because... If you don't raise your hand, you can, you can go ahead and leave. Um, uh, who here has seen the movie Christmas Vacation? All right, all right. Absolute cult classic, all right? We won't be quoting any lines from that movie this morning. <laughs> I, I hear you murmuring them, okay? But, but listen, so... If I, if I say, okay, everyone who has seen that movie, I want you to take out a piece of paper, and um, I want you to write me a description, a one-page description of that movie. Include the quotes, the characters, what happens, um, the, the funny things that, you know, like, just, just, give me, just give me your viewpoint. Give me... What you remember, what is important to you, what is your favorite points. And, and everyone would, because you've all seen the same movie, would have the same general like direction or feel or like you would, you would get it basically right, but, but things are, different things are funny to you, different characters stand out to you, so you might focus in on one thing or one person more than the person sitting next to you, right? And we accept this just as natural human experience and ability that, that not everyone, um, you know, has the same perspective on a situation. And so when we recall something, it's not always exactly the same. This is what happens with the Gospels, okay? Luke was an educated man. He was sophisticated. He had tremendous skills in language and intellect, and you see in his gospel account the type of account that you would expect someone who is very detail-oriented and sophisticated and educated to produce. It's very grammatically correct, right? The language is very good. It makes sense, right? From point to point to point to point to point, it's very linear. It reflects the personality of the person who wrote it. But then you flip over to the Gospel of John, and you see that John is a much different person than Luke is. Right? And maybe he had a different perspective. Maybe he had a different like, goal in communicating um, what his experience and perspective was than the ministry and the life of Jesus. He had, if you want to like, create it in very stark terms, Luke had a very scientific, detail-oriented account of the life and ministry of Jesus. John's perspective was very spiritually oriented. 
It was a little bit less like point to point to point to point to point and more like, man, watch how miraculous and supernatural and powerful and majestic and glorious the ministry of God's eternal Son through the power of the Holy Spirit is. And believe on that. And so when John comes to, to telling the same incarnation moment that Luke described in very stark, real, raw terms, um, and he was wrapped in, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feeding trough. John tells a little bit differently. He tells about the eternal nature of Jesus coming, being sent by the Father, but by being um, like no less than no less God. So if we look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, this is, this is like John's opening line, all right? He sets the stage, um, he sets the stage by painting Jesus, by, by, by making sure he communicates the, the gravity of who exactly is coming to be with us. In the beginning was the Word. Capital W. Not thing, not, not, not noun, right? Not, not, not thing, but, but person. Name. Identification. Title. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then he goes and says, well, let me just tell you, let me just tell you about the majesty and power, right? Through him, all things were made. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Right? And then we jump down a few verses into verse 14. And this is the moment where John describes the, this is like the, the critical impact, right? The, the bomb moment where you see it hit the word, Eternally coexistent with the Father, the agent and purpose behind all of creation. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The eternally coexistent Word of God in Jesus Christ. The one in whom all things were made. That, that nothing was made that he did not make. That everything was made for his purposes and for his glory. That from the very beginning, he was. That very one. The one in whom was wrapped up all the authority and majesty and glory and power of heaven. 
the word was made flesh and came to live amongst the unideal and the non-ordinary and the broken and the discouraged and the angry and everything that the world says is not normal or is wrong or is different about you and your heart and your home and your family, Jesus was like, I will make my dwelling among them. But here, here is where, here is where the miracle happens, right? The miracle happens when we receive and recognize the incarnate, incarnate Jesus in the midst of our home. Because John says, um, the, the word has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. What is it that is revealed when Jesus comes to make his home in the midst of our mess? the glory of God. The glory of the one and only comes and makes its home, shines brightest through the brokenness and messiness of everything we think we should pretend is not about who we are and our family. That is the place that Jesus makes his home. That is the place where the glory of God is on its most rich display. There is no other place, no other event, no other time where God has, has expanded and shown his glory more than in the coming of himself in Jesus Christ. And the place of Jesus Christ is here. Now I have, man, some of the most difficult things a preacher has to do is to find actual physical examples of visions that God gives them. Um, in their mind to illustrate points within preaching. I've come to realize that um, over a, a decade or so of doing this. And, and so this week I was looking for, I had this picture in my mind of an old-fashioned tapestry or rug that when you look underneath it, you see the real chaotic nature of the threads that go every which way, that have no real pattern, no discernible image or structure on the, on the underside. They're, they're frayed, they're breaking off, they're creating lint everywhere, and you're thinking, and you look at the underside of it, and you're like, man, I don't know who put that together, who designed that, but it is certainly um, not too terrific, right? Doesn't look that great at all. Uh, I have this rug here, and it kind of shows that example. 
Um, a lot of these threads are falling out, are poking through, they're bland, they're, they're nondescript, they're not very detail-oriented, they're kind of almost like you're looking at it without your glasses on, right? It's just like, ugh, really wouldn't want to have that in my, in my home, right? Uh, what, see, what, what, I, what I find is that there, there, have, there have been so many times in my life where, where, where my focus, where my focal point, has been on the underside of the rug of my home. Man, it's like, it's not how it should be. And it's chaotic, and it's not ordinary, and it's not normal, and it's not ideal, and I don't like it, and it doesn't look good, and it's like, like everything that I want it to be, it simply is not. And when you look at the underside of the rug, that's the perspective and the viewpoint that you get, right? And that's all that you can see, but no one buys a new rug and flips it over and, and puts the upside down and the downside up, right? There's, a, there's a, a proper side that should be up, that should be the center of our focus. And that is the point where the creator of the rug, the one who saw, had a vision for the finished product, even in the midst of the chaotic nature of the stitching, knew that the chaotic nature of the stitching underneath produced the beautiful image of the rug on the front, right? And you, you needed to be able to embrace and to deal with the, the nature of those threads on the bottom in order to get to the beauty of the rug that you wanted to see for the rest of your life. And we are always meant to see this side of the rug, right? This side of the rug, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter, right? But this is the non-ideal and the unordinary and everything that the world says you aren't and can't be or should have been. And this is the glory that is revealed in your life when Jesus touches down in your home and incarnates himself in grace and in truth. God's glory can find its place in the midst of your home, in the midst of your family, in the midst of your heart when you allow him to incarnate grace and truth there. Glory will be revealed. My, my prayer for you this week is that um, is that you you do the work of reflecting on your own home, your own family, your own heart, your relationships, everything that is, you know, quote unquote broken about who you are. Everything that is not what it should be or could be or could have been or needs to be. Right? And that you ask the Lord, that you ask Jesus Christ to incarnate himself in the midst of everything 
that is not ideal for you. And watch as His grace and His truth purifies, changes, sanctifies, redefines, brings glory to the center of who you are and to the center of all that's important to you. Join me uh, for a few moments in, in prayer as we, uh, we ask the Spirit of God to kind of press this into us. Lord, our, our one heart and our only desire, Lord, is to see and experience your glory. Lord, the ma- your manifest presence here among us. Christmas matters. Christmas matters in our homes. Lord, because it's in, um, it's in the, the closest parts of us, our homes. That Jesus was incarnated. Where he touched down, where he set his feet. It is where he dwells. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us perspective to see the glory. To see how the chaotic patterns and threads of our lives are being weaved together by the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to produce the glory of God this Christmas. In Jesus' name.